Welcome to the Your Success Tonic podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Pinchon, founder of Storytonic and creator of the Story Makeover program. Find out the power of a story makeover by joining me at my upcoming masterclass. Just go to storytonic.co to grab your free seat. Now let's dive in. Welcome to Your Success Tonic. Today, I have a very special guest joining me, Dr. Erica Bocknick. She's an esteemed researcher, family therapist, educator, and a passionate advocate for cultivating emotional well-being. Dr. Bocknick's expertise lies in the realm of social and emotional learning, and she has dedicated her career to understanding its critical role in addressing the prevailing mental health crisis. As a mother of three, Dr. Bocknick truly understands the importance of fostering social and emotional skills in children from an early age. Her research and insights shed light on how these foundational skills can positively influence mental health, academic achievement, and overall well-being, shaping a brighter future for generations to come. Welcome to the podcast, Erica. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you so much, Natalie. I'm so excited to chat with you. Oh, it's so I am. This is an area that I'm interested in from so many different levels in terms of my personal background and uh, interests and experiences. So I cannot wait to dive into this with you. So um, I just want to kick off and ask you, you know, what inspired you to pursue your career in this area? Oh, thank you for asking that question. Well, I think from a very early age, I was always really fascinated by people and all the ways that people can be different. Even when I was little, I I really remember wondering about people and what they were thinking about and what they were feeling. And, and, And so my whole life, I've really had that kind of mindset to wonder and to be curious about other people and what better... Uh, career to go into than to be a therapist and a researcher where I get to wonder for a living. I think curiosity is one of the the most beautiful uh, traits to have. I think it makes life so rich. So <laughs> I love that, that that's the thing that you, you pinpointed. Um, so let's dive in more specifically on the things that you're researching and studying. Um, Let's start with empathy. So can you share with us you know, what the latest research findings are on empathy and yeah, the ways that people can develop it? Yes, absolutely. This is so important for people to know, especially right now at this critical yes. time in the middle. I think most people are, are really waking up to this and becoming aware we're in the middle of a mental health crisis, especially for children and youth. It is not uh, predated by the pandemic. We know that this crest began in 2012 and has only continued to rise. Mm-hmm. And at the heart of it, is a waning of basic fundamental empathy. Now, when people hear the word empathy, they typically imagine behaviors that can be associated with empathy, like kindness or compassion, but those are manifestations of empathy. It it is not actually how empathy is defined. So if you don't mind, let me kind of be a science geek for a moment. 
Let's yes, talk please. about foundations of what empathy is, because I think this will help people wonder and be a little more curious about how to implement it in their workplace, in their lives, in their communities. Beautiful. Empathy is the awareness that I have my own internal states. Internal states are not just feelings, it's feelings, thoughts, beliefs, um, motivations. It's the awareness that I have those internal states. It is the basic awareness that the other person I'm in conversation with also has their own internal states. That's empathy. And the reason it's important to really drill down on that and understand that's what it is, is because that's how we humanize each other. We <laughs> understand that we each have internal states. We understand that the internal states that I, that I have, I understand those are my own. And they don't have to be shared or accepted by another person for that person to be able to empathize. They just have to be believed, known. And I have to have that basic awareness that I have mine and someone else has theirs. Now, what you do with that information can take you on all kinds of different paths. It might be that with that information, you're able to be kind to another person and say, I understand you have your own worldview that is informing what you're saying or doing right now. It might be that it just simply leads you, and, and I shouldn't say just, because in my mind, this is actually the biggest thing you can do for someone. It might be that it leads you to believe their truth, to understand that multiple truths can exist. What we seem to be doing in this world that is connected to the mental health crisis is trying to shortcut this process by performing empathy. So you're in conversation, someone else speaks, you just repeat back their words, right? I understand that you feel disappointed. Let me explain to you my thinking. That's not empathetic. <laughs> not at all. Especially if you don't foundationally, if you haven't taken the time to wonder what would lead this person to feel disappointed? Can I really believe that that person's disappointed, even if I'm not disappointed? Or if I am disappointed, but in contrast about something else or in a way that conflicts with the other person's emotion, you've got to do that, that foundational work before you can decide what you're going to say to communicate to the other person that you empathize. Mm. This is so huge. And, and I can see, you know, just how impactful it is to bring awareness to this in all areas of your life, including, yeah. you know, your personal relationships and your work relationships um, with your family. But, you know, from a, from a business perspective, as most of the listeners on this podcast are uh, business owners or, you know, leaders, um, I think... Empathy is so, so crucial in terms of what we can achieve, um, how we can bring people on board and how we can work side by side with people um, who maybe don't hold the exact same opinions as you or experiences as you and still create something really beautiful and thrive together. Yes, exactly. And if I may kind of attach on to that, right, that's the why. Why should I grow my empathy skills in the workplace? 
I want to really differentiate in this conversation productivity from innovation. Yeah. Productivity, of course, is a relatively new concept in our history that is driven by, you know, the industrial age. And it would be reasonable for us to start interrogating the meaning and kind of the uh, value we've assigned to it. Innovation is what makes us human. Innovation is the sort of core, uh, it's a very core human fundamental. We've always innovated. That is what has led us to be at the top of the food chain as a species that otherwise shouldn't be thriving when you sort of think about characteristics of survival, right? We don't run very fast. We don't fare well in a range of weather, but we relate to each other. We create communities and we innovate. And so if we think about innovation as that creative flourishing, we really need exactly what you just said, which is to be able to combine the worldviews, the talents, the skills of people who have diverse perspectives and ways of thinking. And the only way we can do that safely and meaningfully is by growing our capacities for empathy. Mm. Yes, it's the doorway, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I mean, my personal experience is that when we successfully bring people together who do have different backgrounds, different talents, different viewpoints even, and we are able to work together, what we create is so much more powerful, not just personally, not just in terms of personal thriving or, or fulfillment, but the end product even is just so much more incredible. Like the, the thing that we've all worked together to create is so much more than one person could have done or a, a team of, of people who maybe weren't able to kind of expand, expand our, our thinking and our hearts to go with it. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So one of the things that um, has occurs to me as I, as I listen to you is when we think about um, the fast paced environment that we're all living in and just how relentless the inputs are all the time, um, one of the things I think that happens is that we get into this state of just overwhelm and that things like empathy get shut down because we just have to just get through each and every day and we're just trying to make it through and we are depleted. And the first thing that seems to get really impacted is compassion for ourselves and empathy for others. And so I'm wondering if you've seen that connection between uh, burnout and exhaustion and this need to kind of reconnect to empathy. Yes, we are all burned out. I hear it from the, you know, billion dollar tech CEO. I hear it from the stay at home mom. I hear it from um, teachers and physicians. Um, everybody's burned out. And you described burnout so well, because people sometimes hear the word burnout and they think, oh, I'm tired. My tank is low. Would mm -hmm. I is to fill my tank back up. And what you really described that is so much more accurate is that burnout and empathy are like 
twins, right? They're Cain and Abel. And what's different, what's important about that distinction is that we are not cars. We are not machines. Right. <laughs> we can't just fill an empty tank and expect to go back into the same environments, mm-hmm. drain our tank, leave the environment, fill it back up. We know this isn't working. This, in fact, this process is what has gotten us here to burnout. All right. And that's why we hear about trends like quiet quitting. Because what people are finally saying is there is no amount of glossing this over. There's no amount of vacations and exercise and spa days and naps that is going to change the fundamental problem, which is that my work environment is the cause of burnout. My life that I have to live is the cause of burnout. The only self-care that really works is cultivating an everyday that is nourishing. Hmm. Yes. Yes. As yes, I love it because as someone I, you know, I definitely did experience pretty bad burnout a couple of years ago. And yes, I relate to that so strongly. That is what got me through, got me through to the other side. Mm. Um, how would you um, say that individuals can address burnout, you know, uh, when, when they start to acknowledge the fact that, yes, they've, they've hit this, this wall? Well, I can talk about this in a couple of ways. Uh, at the individual level, your choices are limited. And I think that we have to acknowledge that. The more power and privilege you have, the more choices you get to make. Mm-hmm. So you might pivot. You might make big changes if that is something that's at your disposal. Um, that is, of course, why we hear about people engaging in practices like quiet quitting, where they're just sort of saying, I need this income. I don't have a lot of flexibility, but I'm not going to engage in this workplace in the same way. And um, I'm recognizing the limits of the environment that I'm in. Yeah. So individuals can do a lot to continue to exist in these spaces and preserve their mental health by really asking the fundamental questions around what is my purpose? What is my vision? What are my goals right here, right now? And sometimes at work, your goal is to earn a living. Now, if you're in a leadership position and you don't want your team to be making that kind of a choice, Mm-hmm. You have the power to start thinking about how to structure environments that don't contribute to burnout at the same degree. And to me, systems change, environmental change, really thinking about the soil that your folks are trying to grow in is where we can see the greatest impact on people in your own environment. And then that's how we disrupt the mental health crisis. Yeah. For sure, for sure. Yeah, the I love this uh, analogy of the soil, right? The the soil when it's when it's been over overused, just gets really uh, it doesn't it can't produce fruitful uh, yields, and we need to keep we really replenish at a real really root level, and and re restructure our environment and our inputs and. Um, 
the foundation that we build our days on. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yes. So in the um, in the research literature, there is um, you know a whole body of evidence around the term psychological safety. Mm. And really interesting about psychological safety besides all the ways that we can learn from how to create psychologically safe environments it really is one of the few uh kind of principles in the business organizational psychology world that refers to the need for whole environments to be well before you can expect individuals to kind of bootstrap their way to wellness. Yes, absolutely. And I, I think this is something you mentioned a little bit earlier, and it's, it's really important to underline that, you know, um, the onus is not on the individual. When you're in an environment, you can only do so much. You only have so much uh, impact on what you can make happen, both for yourself and the people around you. You have to kind of enlist support. You have to be in an environment where everyone is thinking and aware of these things. Otherwise, uh, yeah, it's not up to you just to, you know, double your meditation time. <laughs> that isn't going to make it better. Not necessarily, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so... One of the one of the questions I have is, you know, when we are in an environment that is really draining us, that is to, to a lot to some degree toxic to us, um, it can be really hard to create a separation between the work environment and the you know personal space, right? Where we where we can kind of feel reconnected to ourselves and and to the bigger picture of, of what we want in our lives. And so do you have any tips for some techniques that you can um, you can use to kind of leave the work behind and and avoid that sort of rumination, the the kind of sitting in that stew of, of negativity that you're kind of living in every day when you go to work? Mm, it's it really is so hard. I really want to emphasize that, uh, and I've been in, in environments like that myself. Yeah. Um, and it seems like you've had your own experiences, and I would be really surprised if there's anyone listening who hasn't, because right. the truth is, the very nature of our work lives um, have have just, I think, systematically not had health at the center. Mm -hmm what the sort of team-based goals are. Typically, health is kind of secondary to outputs, to productivity. Um, so it's just so common for people to be in workplaces where that becomes amplified in a way that's toxic. Uh, toxic processes flourish in environments that are not human-centered, that are output-centered. Um, so I know that this is a very common experience and I've had it myself. And I do just want to really emphasize, I do think a big part of mental wellness in those environments is actually to understand the limits of what you yourself can impact alone. To really yeah. wrap your head around that. Because a lot of what happens when we take these conversations home, when we worry over what could be done, what's going to happen, is that we imagine that in our head somewhere, there's a solution to be found. That's what anxiety is. It's when your thoughts get trapped and you deal with the unknown 
under the fallacy that the solution, any solution to any unknown or known problem exists somewhere in there in your brain. And just as burnout and empathy are these kinds of twin souls, that is true also about anxiety and wonder. Mm. Anxiety is where thoughts are trapped and you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, what your boss is going to say to you, what's going to happen to the other employees in your company, um, and you ruminate. Mm-hmm. You really start to accept, I don't have the answers. I understand the power dynamics. I'm tapping into where I do have flex, where I can make an impact. Mm-hmm. And I'm also recognizing the limits of that. The other thing I can do is start training my thoughts. So when I start down a circular path and I start to say to myself, this is going to happen. What if this happens? What if that happens? If I change my language and I say, I wonder what next week will be like. I wonder what tomorrow will be like. I wonder what my life is going to look like a year from now. When we start to wonder, we accept that the unknown is sometimes terrible as we are sort of primed in these environments to assume, mm-hmm. but the unknown sometimes is beautiful too. Mm-hmm. Wonder reminds us that we simply just don't know. And now we can create cognitive flexibility. Mm-hmm. I don't know for sure what's to come, but I can dream about it. And that reshapes how you enter into these spaces because they don't anymore necessarily feel rigid to you. They are for today, and I have to navigate it today as best as I can, but I really don't know what kind of changes are coming. So that's the first thing is to adopt a wonder mindset. Mm. The second thing is to know that our best resources for coping with stress are inside of our relationships. So if your workplace relationships are not promotive for you, Think carefully about how much you engage in them socially. Mm -hmm. Instead, invest in relationships that are productive and promotive. They don't even have to be spaces where you're venting your problems. We are mental health benefits from simply having loving, nurturing spaces in our lives where we do simple things together. Even small talk with somebody who you believe empathizes with you at a core level without even having to exchange words about it can improve how you experience negative relationships in your life. Yes. And I think this is so, so important. Thank you so much for saying that, Erica. Um, Because the truth is, you know, I think that there's a lot of pressure put on people to fix things you know it's not just that we're ruminating we're trying to f- worrying and we're getting anxious about things is that we do get a lot of pressure like you should be able to fix this if, if there's a problem you should fix it and it's on you there's a lot of messaging around that in the world around you know if there's a problem you're probably the the part of the part of the problem right <laughs> but one of the things i think is really important to acknowledge and speak about is that there are situations where you cannot thrive, right? There are people who are going to undermine your sense of 
well-being. And there are work environments where we can see bullying and aggression um, in various forms, right? And um, from overt things that are really easy to kind of identify to the much more difficult, uh, subtle forms of maybe manipulation or undercutting people or making people feel like they're not welcome and things that I've personally experienced, you know, in, in very toxic work environments. Um, and I just wanted to say, you know, that there are times when that's just, that's just the reality and it's not on you. Right. And I feel that, um, is there a way that you would say that can be helpful when you're in that situation to kind of identify and differentiate between, you know, constructive criticism, um, and more kind of over bullying or controlling or aggressive behavior. So it can be hard to find the difference sometimes. Yeah. Uh, so I would say it's a couple of things. One is that the absence of empathy mm. is your first red flag. Yeah. Right. Has the other person done the work of holding in mind multiple truths exist in a conversation and I really want to know you and your thinking and beliefs around this. Has that happened? The second thing mm. is, what do you notice is either um, the outcome or the stated goal, which sometimes can be different. So I'll talk about that in a minute, but mm. is the purpose of the conversation overall health and wellness? And if so, if empathy exists, if the goal has been stated, we need to work together better as a team. And here are some ways that I think we really all need to kind of think about our contributions. And then you see that there's room to mm. make those changes. Mm. Mm. That's very constructive. Yes. If the goal appears to be control and there is no betterment for shared goals, yeah. Now I'm starting to understand that that's what underlies an aggressive or toxic pattern of communication. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I really encourage people to look out for is double bind communication. Mm -hmm. Double bind communication is an oppressive tactic. It is when somebody says something with words but another meaning is being communicated, either with tone, oh. uh, body language, or patterns of behavior. So for example, if somebody says, I really care about you, but in no way are they demonstrating care with their actions or even their affect, right? If the words come out in a way that feels sinister, you've got to pay attention to the instincts that you have about communication because it happens at multiple levels. Yes. Sometimes the way people exercise double binds is that they'll try to couch bullying and bookend it with words uh, that sound interpersonal, right? We're all in this together. And then, right. And then at the end, I hope we can understand each other. Yes. Right? But if there's something in the middle that felt oppressive and then it's bookended in such a way that it leaves you feeling confused or um, constrained, mm -hmm. 
That's a double bind communication. The purpose of it is that the person who's doing the oppressing um, is escaping conflict um, or pushback because they're using words in such a way that they leave their communication partner feeling confused and kind of paralyzed. It's a, it's a, it's mm-hmm. a part of gaslighting in other words. Yeah. I didn't say that. I said this, didn't you hear this? You only heard that part. Right. Um, and so when you hear that repeatedly, especially when actions are not following words, you may know that you're in a toxic relationship. Now, having said that we've all been socialized in these patterns of speech mm-hmm. because our dynamics exist at multiple levels of our society. So it's also on all of us to pay attention to how sacred we are with the words that we're using. Mm. Yes. It can be kinder in other words to say the honest and direct thing and make sure that what you're saying matches what your internal states are. Yeah. One of the things that I found when I hit burnout and started coming through it was realizing that I didn't even know what I was feeling a lot of the time. Like I, I disconnected so much that I, I wouldn't even really know, identify what the feelings themselves were. So in a situation like that, um, I might just be trying to process what's being said and not even really tap into what the feelings are that it's provoking, just knowing that something's off, right? But it's not, it's it's just, again, it's this thing of like, I've just got to get through this. I'm just trying to make things work. Uh, it's on me to make this work, especially if you're in, in a managerial leadership position, you know, you feel so much pressure to just kind of move things forward. Um, but yeah, this, this is where the this is where coaching can really help. <laughs> it's not easy to go, got me through this. <laughs> it really can. I mean, at the end of the day, that's, that's sort of the thing is yeah. that it is hard in the moment, especially if you're used to operating in a way that you're suppressing what you feel. Yeah. Now, and I really want to highlight this because people, I think, get it wrong that burnout is the function of simply frequency, right? That I'm just working too much. It's right. not the It's just that I'm working too much. Mm-hmm. And that's that is really faulty thinking. When people work in environments where they are fully human, where they are potentiated, they don't experience burnout at the at the same rate in the sense that they don't have to suppress what they feel, who they are, and their creative capacities. That's what burnout is. Thank you for saying that so brilliantly. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that really makes so much sense. And yes, I think that that's, that chimes in with my experience 100%. And you have to suppress what you feel in environments where there's no basic empathy in the workplace culture. You have to, yeah. to survive it. If you yeah. felt things in a place where that was considered even in the best case scenario, just not normative. Mm-hmm. You don't belong there. You can't affiliate there. And so then you end up in moments like you just described where you're feeling like, ooh, I probably should be tapping into my instincts here and I almost can't. Mm-hmm. It tells you something about your broader patterns of functioning. Yeah. Yeah, the, the safety isn't there, right? Mm-hmm. It's not even safe to feel it. You just, so that's, that's really hard um, 
to identify, you know, when you're habituated to an environment and you're not really, you know, everyone's okay and everyone says hi and, you know, but, mm. <laughs> and no, <laughs> it takes a while sometimes to, to recognize that. Yeah. Um, so part of my journey was definitely um, redefining what I thought was a, you know, what, what, what made work fulfilling and what made my career worth investing in my time and energy. And so my definition of success changed radically, which is, you know, part of the reason behind this podcast and why I'm having all these fabulous <laughs> conversations with people. So I just wanted to uh, check in with you, Erica, and ask you, how has your personal definition of success evolved over time? And maybe why? Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. I love that question so much. And I love hearing kind of someone, you know, a thought partner like you who's gone through this. Uh, please, I hope everyone does this in their life. I, I often joke, my first book is going to be called, What Are We Even Doing Here? <laughs> because yes. I think you have to just ask yourself that on a daily basis, whether it's parenting or it's leadership or it's kind of your everyday kind of thinking about the tasks of the day we get so caught up in the shoulds and we don't stop to say what is my intent and that I think has been the biggest change for me in my definition of success yes. um, I was on a conveyor belt in academia and I did all the things. I was as, as successful as I could be. I had all the articles published and I had all, you know, the grants and my teaching reviews were amazing. And I was impacting my students and I was doing all the things. And mm. it's a it's a world where success is measured in those kinds of metrics. Yeah. And I really started to ask myself, why did I show up here in the first place? What is what I believe, what I can contribute best? <sighs> Where are the places and spaces in my life going to be where not only do I flourish, but I can contribute to flourishing? Because I feel like that's part of what my meaning is and part of what my purpose is, is to amplify, support, invest in human flourishing. Am I doing that? And I had to really, there were some hard answers to that question. I, I think I had done what I could do and it was time to make a move forward. So now I think, I think I hadn't even really asked myself the question, what is success? Yeah. I think I assumed yeah. the question. And when I started to ask it, it really became a question of impact. And then I was able to wonder what could impact look like? And the wondering has led me in so many beautiful places. Mm. And I do this at home in my life too. I do this in parenting. Mm -hmm. uh, when I when I talk with parents of kids of all ages, there is so much to unpack about. Well, I read this book that said to do X and I know it's the right thing to do to do Y, right? And people really have to stop and ask themselves, what are we even doing here? Who am I raising? What is the meaning of parenting, what can I actually contribute to this person's life? 
what do I wonder about who they're going to be and who I'm going to be on that journey with them? And it makes so much that is exhausting worrying over the micro level decisions that used to seem so impactful. So much of that starts to fall away. And this happens in work too. You can really start choosing the hills you're going to die on. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's the fundamental question. What do I value? Take some time and meditate on that. What are my values and how am I living them? Most people, when I do this exercise with them, they write their values down. They know what they are. And then when we talk about priorities, they can see that there's a lot of inversion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I I do this exercise too. It's foundational to the work that I do with my clients then. And uh, it reveals so much. It reveals so much about what we have been suppressing, what we've been postponing and um, what we've just been assuming, you know, Mm -hmm. just the way that, you know, like you said, we just accepted, well, this is what success is, right? This is what I did. I certainly did that. And, and then you just realize, well, no, that actually, <laughs> no, I don't really care about those things at all. What am I doing? <laughs> yeah. We're meant to affiliate. I yeah. think a lot of people yeah. have gotten the false belief that what humans do is avoid risk and seek safety. And that's not at all true. We are not risk averse, but what we are is loneliness averse and we seek affiliation. And so sometimes we do it mindlessly. And Mm -hmm. so this is an opportunity to really take stock of that. How can I affiliate in ways that feel really authentic to me? Oh my goodness, Erica, that's like huge what you just said. We need to record a whole other podcast on yeah. just that Any, topic. Anytime you it. want. Anytime you want. That's incredible. I, yeah, I really, I really want to disrupt this thinking for people because I think it that's part of what leads to so many toxic behaviors. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. This is huge. Absolutely. Um reverts, you know, upends the whole paradigm that so many of us are operating on amazing we would never fall in love we would never do pretty basic things like cross the street go to school which can be toxic for so many people that's also a podcast for time we would never do things in life that we believe are part of our purpose if we were fundamentally seeking safety all the time it just can't be true yeah this is so, so true. Um, and I am going to be thinking about that for the rest of the day <laughs> and maybe well beyond. Thank you for that amazing, amazing nugget. Um, so I was wondering if you have a, a book or a resource that you particularly love that you would recommend to listeners of this podcast? Oh, gosh. Unfortunately, I have things that I love that fuel my thinking. Yeah. I don't yet have a resource that will encapsulate all of these things kind of neatly. But here's my personal book list. This is a group of books that I'm really learning from and really investing in when I think about 
how to adapt and implement some of the best thinking that there is. Um, one is a, a, a newer book. It's called Humankind. I don't know if you've read it, um, but I'm just loving it. It's really speaking to me and it's written in a way that I think is so accessible. Mm-hmm. My One of my all-time favorite books of philosophy that I think everyone should read if they haven't is All About Love by Bell Hooks. Cool. I don't know this one. So oh, you must read. You must read. Um, and again, it won't, it's not concrete in the ways that we're talking about, but you'll hear the echoes, right? Yeah. This thinking is not new, but we just have to learn how to create societies that are truly um, built for human flourishing. And so this is, I think, a really core, that's a really core book to read. Um, yeah, I think I'll leave you with those two, yeah. actually. Those are, are two really good ones that I go back to all the time. Um, there are some other thinkers in family therapy that I, when I consult, I am adapting for um, communities and workplace environments. Um, Virginia Satir, for example, mm-hmm. and her you know humanist approach. And um, Salvador Mnuchin is a wonderful family therapist who talks about role definition and clarity. And this is a really important thing that I think a lot of workplaces are missing that leads to psychological safety. Um, So for me, it's really about kind of expanding your thinking outside of your own box and how do you bring in these ideas that are so human-centered into spaces that really suffer from a lack of humanity. Yeah. Wow. These are huge, huge thoughts, big ideas indeed for us to to keep diving into. Um, I am sure that there are going to be listeners who are going to want to connect with you and follow up with you. What's the best way for them to find you online? I would love it. You can find me on social media at uh, Dr. Erica Convo, D-R-E-R-I-K-A-C-O-N-V-O. Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn are where I try to be active. Um, And you can also check out out, uh, my organization website, myconvo.org. It's really easy to book a single session there. So you can uh, chat with me one-on-one and we can keep extending the conversation. Oh, amazing. Thank you so much. And those links will also be in the show notes to make it easier for people just to click right through. Oh, thank you, Erica. It was just such a pleasure to connect with you and have this conversation today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me, Natalie. What a fun convo. Yes. Let's do it again. (laughs) I love it.